Welcome again to City Life. It's good to see all of you here. Some of you are like, well, this is like the third, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth time you've been welcomed here but from the mic. Maybe people on your way in, but that's by design. Come on, we hope that tonight, um, not only does God speak to you, not only does he impart something in your life, not only are you drawn closer to him, that's reason number one we come together, to bring make much of Jesus. But second, we want you to feel at home. We want you to leave encouraged. So if you're here tonight, I trust that, man. Thanks again, Levi, for coming here to lead us in worship. Worship was phenomenal. Um, but uh, I also just, we trust that God is going to speak through his word tonight. And can we go straight there? Y'all good to jump right into the word tonight. We're going to jump into uh, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Maybe you got your Bible on you. If you don't, there's Bibles in the pews. And then lastly, maybe you got it on your phone. But if it's taking you a little while to get there, I'll start by praying. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for what you've already done in worship. God, we thank you for everything you want to do through your word tonight. We just say, God, we open our hearts. God, give us hearing hearts. God, give us an understanding mind to receive your word. And may your Holy Spirit, God, just water it and plant it so that it can bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's a powerful passage here at the beginning of Colossians. And, and Paul writes that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And this is key. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself and made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Come on, that's good. That's a powerful passage, and I believe that's going to speak to us tonight. But this week, we started summer, officially. Stepped into summer. It's felt like summer for a few weeks now. But uh, we officially stepped into summer this week. So I know with summer, there's a lot of traveling, a lot of vacations. Anybody already gone traveling, already gone on a summer uh, vacation? A few, a few. Anybody got plans later this summer? We're going to take off. We're going to go somewhere. A lot. That's good. Come on, we champion rest here. Any, any places that are exotic, islands, Caribbean, Hey. I feel you. When I was a kid, vacation was, hey, let's go, let's, let's hop in that Dodge Caravan and either drive to Illinois or South Florida to visit grandparents. So that was vacation for me as a kid, so I feel you. Um, but I know for myself, for about 10 people from City Life, both our campuses, this October, we'll be headed back to the Dominican Republic, but not just to, to hang out on the beaches. We're going to the hills of La Guasara. It's a village that through Food for the Hungry, this organization, we've signed up for 10 years to invest in that community. Both campuses, uh, we sponsor uh, somewhere between 50 and 60 kids from that village. And we go every year, and we're dedicated to doing that for 10 years. We've built latrines. Right now we're working on uh, raising money for a water filtration system so that village can have clean water, which is going to be a huge, massive step for that village. But, but we're looking forward to going back because we've gone as a group. I'm drawing a blank, either four or five times. I've been three times. This is the fourth. 
They know me as Hugo, it's juice in Spanish, right? And all the kids, and they know us by now. They're excited when we come. And, and as a group, we've been going through a book. It's called uh, When Helping Hurts. It's a great book. As a team, we've been going through it. It's, it's, uh, its tagline is how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and yourself. Because when we give, when we're generous, when we serve, uh, how we do that is going to be determined by how we define poverty. Because in life, or you think even as a doctor, if you misdiagnose the problem, then you can prescribe all kinds of things out of love, but you might end up hurting them. You might end up hurting yourself in the process. So as a team, we've been, all right, how do we define poverty? What is poverty? So I'd open that question up tonight. If you had to define poverty, is anybody bold enough to say, well, this is what poverty is? Or There's no wrong answer unless we go to Webster's, but I'm not going to do that, so don't, don't fear. How would you define poverty? Not being able to afford food. Lack of anything you need. Living in the slums. Not knowing Jesus. We could just stop now because that's where the sermon is headed, right? <laughs> but what is poverty? Right? The World Bank, if, if you're familiar with the World Bank, maybe you're not. It's, it's a unique global partnership to fight poverty in a sustainable way. Currently has some 189 member countries, and it provides loans to countries all around the world for capital programs. And, and it was established after World War II to finance the rebuilding of a continent that had been ravaged by war. And it was very successful in countries like France in terms of getting them back on their feet again. So they thought, okay, that worked. So let's try doing the same thing in India. Let's try doing the same thing in countries in Africa. And it wasn't effective. It didn't take. So... By 1990, they were just confounded by, all right, what do we need to do? So they did this massive survey. Most surveys I talk about in churches, a couple thousand people from this group over here. But in 60 different countries, they surveyed 60,000 different experts on poverty. What do I mean by experts on poverty? They went to the poor themselves, right, the material poor. And they asked them, what is poverty to you? How would you define poverty? And they defined poverty in many different ways, but some of the common themes was to feel less than, to feel alienated from society, to feel full of shame. Words like inferiority, shame, low self-esteem, alienation, loneliness, lack of contact. These were words that were used again and again. Very much so psychological and social in nature. A condition, hopelessness, helplessness, and, and loneliness. But in our culture... You know, for me, when I think of poverty, I think of a lack of material things because we live in a material culture. So our solutions are often, well, the solution is material things. So mission trips that churches go on are like our trip to the DR. So often it can become, well, we're going to give them things or we're going to build them a home and then we're just going to dip. Right? Like, and that's a successful mission trip in our minds. And the material lack is very real. You go to La Guasra, they have needs that we're called to meet. We've brought shoes there. We've brought Bibles there. We've built latrines again. We're ministering to those things. But all of those are symptoms of something that's deeply rooted, that's psychological, that's relational, and that's spiritual. See, God is a relational being, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through eternity. And he created man and woman. He created us in his image. So we're intensely relational creatures. We are wired for relationship. And in this book, When Helping Hurts, it highlights four relationships that we can experience a poverty in that we see in life. And those are God, self, others, and creation. 
We were created for relationship with God. Well, many of us are aware of that, but we can experience a poverty of spiritual intimacy with God that, that can wreck us in life. We, have a, 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 we can have a poverty of self. Right? We're created in God's image. We're created in the Imago Dei. We, are, uh, we have inherent value because of that. But we can experience a, a poverty of self, a poverty of being where you feel low self-esteem, where you feel shame. We are supposed to have a relationship with others, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, to love our neighbors as Christ loved us. But we can experience a poverty of community where there's self-centeredness or exploitation of others because, again, we fail to see that we're all made in the image of God. And then we're called to have a relationship with creation. We're called to steward creation. We're called to, to develop potential in God's creation. But there can be a poverty of this stewardship. Laziness or, or loss of purpose because of our low self-esteem or image. See, God created us for these relationships. And when we experience them in the way we're intended to experience them, we experience the kingdom of God and its gift to culture and its gift to the world. But poverty, on the other hand, spiritually is rooted in broken relationships. It's a set of relationships that aren't at work. And when these relationships are broken. So often it's reflected in the culture at large. It's reflected in society at large. You know, so often we think of sin with ourselves because that's so often we, we go to ourselves. but sin can also become and does become a systemic issue where because every person is broken, when you look at systems, those systems can be broken from government all the way down to the church, right? Newsflash, nobody's perfect in the church, right? So if there's issues in church, because no matter what church you try to find that has the perfect people, you're going to always be looking, right? The fall of man in Genesis fractured these four relationships, and the gospel is all about reconciling them, bringing those relationships back together. We opened with that passage in Colossians where it says that through Jesus, God reconciled everything, everyone to himself. Every one of these relationships was, was reconciled through his blood. So the end game, when we minister to the poor, we go on missions trips, it's, it's, it's not to simply uh, give them material things so that they can have an accumulation of assets. You look at America, we've, we've shown through our middle and upper class that we experience poverty in a whole other direction. Right? We're marked by high rates of divorce, of addiction, mental illness, substance abuse. We need to help we're called to help the poor, but we need the right end in mind, the right end game. Because, again, a lot of us have two cars. We can go home and feed our family, but we experience a poverty in another direction. You know, I would tell you tonight that an accumulation of assets without gospel context can create a God complex. When you don't have a gospel complex or a gospel uh, matrix to see the world through, when you start accumulating things, it develops in us this God complex that I've, I've done this, I've made this, and, and there's pride. Hosea 6, 13, 6, the prophet Hosea to the Israelites, he's speaking on behalf of God in the Old Testament, and he says, when they had pasture, they became satisfied. They were satisfied and their hearts became proud, therefore they forgot me. They developed a God complex. It results in a poverty of relationship in these four areas, but in a, another direction completely. You think about in our culture the, the poverty in these relationships, the poverty of relationship with God. We lack spiritual intimacy because when we have, and we have like they did in the book of Hosea, so often we treat God as he's extra or, or he's not even needed. Now, we would say I believe in God, but we believe in God, but we don't pray. 
We believe in God, but we don't pursue him through his word and through the, the community of faith. We live as Christian atheists. <laughs> we believe in God, but, but we trust more in what's in our bank account and find more peace in that than we do in, in God and who he is and what he says about us. We experience a poverty in all these different ways. Creation, a poverty in stewardship. We become workaholics. We talked about rest a few weeks ago and how being a workaholic is just as sinful as being lazy, but it's celebrated in our world because we celebrate an accumulation of assets. A poverty of, of, of relationship with others because you look at our culture, we become self-centered, individualistic. So often we don't know the name of the person across the street. What I love about when we go to La Guasara, the kids are like just running all around. Like, where's your mom and dad? They don't care. They know the name of everybody in that community. There's a richness there in relationship with others that we don't have. But we can experience that poverty there. There's a, there's a poverty even of self and a self-image, but it's not because we have a low self-image. It's the other direction we we think too highly of ourselves at times. We can create this God complex. And what solidified this for me, because at first you're like, really, poverty? We experience poverty? Is, is this question, am I so poor that all I have is my money? Am I so poor that all I have is money? In Revelation 3, God is speaking to a church, and they're like, they say we are, we're wealthy, we have everything we need, and just verses, verses later, God says you're wretched and poor. Because we measure our wealth in, in material things, but poverty is rooted in this system of, of relationships and broken relationships that aren't working. So for our ministry team, before we go to DR, we have to absolutely see this correctly because otherwise the default mode for people coming from our culture where it's all about material things is, well, they need what we have. They need what we have so we can be the solution. But really, we need to go there with the perspective of, no, we all experience poverty. We've all experienced brokenness due to sin. And Jesus is the solution. And we can all be healed. Otherwise, our helping that village can exacerbate both our poverties, right? It can give us this God complex as we pat ourselves on the back for doing a project. And, it, and as we do a project and maybe don't let them get involved, then all of a sudden they're back and they're not feeling good enough, not uh, walking back into shame. And this speaks volumes about mission work, and this speaks volumes about ministering to the poor. And maybe all I've done for the last 10 minutes is confuse you, then just pick up the book, buy it, and read it. But the reason I intro with that is because it also speaks to, to, to ourselves in our culture and in our context. And it helps us rethink both our generosity and it helps us rethink our serving. It helps us rethink our giving and how we serve those around us. Because, again, we live in a materially rich culture. But the problem isn't material things. Probably one of the most uh, misquoted scriptures in the Bible is, is money is the root of all evil. But it, it's not, that's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Having money is not a bad thing. But when money has you, that's a bad thing. And you, that's a fill-in-the-blank statement for just about everything God created, right? When you have it, not necessarily a bad thing, most stuff. <laughs> But when it has you, you can't let go of it, then it's become an idol. Again, the problem isn't things. The problem isn't a pursuit of pleasure. God created man, put him in Eden, which means pleasure, to enjoy it, to enjoy his creation. And in doing so, step into relationship with him and praise him and glorify him. But when creation and the things he's created, it takes our focus off of him and hurts our relationship with him, then we get into trouble. We see it with Adam and Eve. They caught a God complex. This fruit, you bite this, you'll become like God. 
Right? There was a God complex there. It fractured their relationship with God as we see them hide from him. Fractured their relationship with themselves as we see them feel shame for the first time. It fractured their relationship with each other as it quickly got petty. They started pointing fingers. And then it fractured their relationship with creation as it stepped into the curse. And throughout history, ever since, man's biggest trap, one of the biggest traps for man is to step into this God complex whenever we are in a season of blessing. And how do we get rid of it? How do we not step into that trap? There's multiple solutions. But the, the number one that I would submit is, is just ditch the health and wealth gospel. So often you think about the word net worth, the term net worth. We've been steeped in a society that values and judges people by what they have and what they've accumulated. And as a result, often acknowledged, it sneaks its way into the church where you begin to measure the quality of one's faith by their quality of life. And if someone is poor, it's somehow because they're less spiritual. We equate spiritual maturity with financial prosperity. The idea of, of net worth, it, it's huge in our society. You don't believe me, go to adopt a kid. Steph and I had forms where we had to fill out our assets, our liabilities, pages on pages. We had to do that for multiple agencies, had to do that for Ethiopia, had to do that for India, had to do that for grants we applied for at least a half dozen times, upwards of at least around 10, where we had to fill out these forms with our assets and our liabilities and maybe... You're young, and you look at me like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> assets, what you own. Liabilities, what you owe. You want in life to have more assets than liabilities and debt. That's free. But there's a trap at the end of that goal. Because, in the, again, in this materialistic culture, without a gospel context, you accumulate enough assets, and you get a, a God complex, kind of like a Mufasa, you build your own pride rock, and you can go out and look out and be like, all of this is mine. Right? I built this. I accumulated this. This is mine. This can be yours. And you kind of stroke your pride up on this rock and pat yourself on the back. Exactly. Then you got to watch your back for Scar. <laughs> Raj hasn't seen that yet. I'm going to have to fix that real soon. But how do we reconcile this? How do we heal it? Again, you, you reframe your thoughts in terms of net worth and the health of wealth gospel. But I want to look at two encounters that Jesus had and how that informs both our, our generosity, helps us rethink generosity, and it helps us rethink our service and serving. And the first is in Luke chapter 5. We were actually in this passage a couple weeks ago. It's Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because we were just there a couple weeks ago and dug deep into it. But if... You've never heard it before. Peter and his boys, they've been fishing all night. They were fishermen. Jesus was there. He was preaching, and their, their boats were empty, and he calls upon them. And they ate again. Just spent all night fishing. Didn't catch a thing. It was a waste. Their net worth, their literal net worth, pun intended, was zilch, zero. They had caught nothing. But then Jesus comes, tells them to go out in the middle of the day when it made no sense to put down their net, and they catch just this miraculous catch, a, a catch that was so big that materially it would have blessed them, it would have been a boon to their business. But Peter realizes this was no accident. This was, this was a miracle. This is a man of God, Jesus. Uh, Jesus was because he realized this, is, this could only be the hand of God. So Peter immediately, in humility, bows before Jesus. And he says, go away from me. I'm, I'm a sinful man. And what he didn't realize is that admitting your own inability, 
is a prerequisite for service because only then can we fully depend on God. Feeling less than God, feeling less than holy is precisely the raw material that Jesus is looking for, that God is looking for, that he wants to work with. Admitting his inability, it didn't disqualify him. This admission was actually the biggest thing on his resume in that moment, becoming a disciple of Jesus, and it's the same for us. Admitting that we're poor in spirit, it's the first step towards healing a poverty and spiritual intimacy with God. Because as soon as we realize, man, I'm poor in spirit, then our hands can open to grace and all that God provides for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a powerful statement. And it doesn't bode well for those with a God complex or those that are self-righteous. But when we can get past feeling self-made and self-righteous, we can open our hands and, again, receive from God all that he has to offer. Peter finds himself walking away from a historic catch because Jesus has caught his heart. His net worth wasn't found in nets anymore. It was found in the love of Jesus. But I think it's also helpful to look at Jesus' call to another man uh, in Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. Now, in Luke, it doesn't mention that he's young, but this is who we know as the rich young ruler. And the passage, it starts with this man asking what, Matthew 5, 3 already answered. He asked Jesus, what do I need to do to make sure that I have eternal life? And Jesus engages him on, in conversation, and, he's, and he, he gives him five commandments. He omits the ones related to God, and he gives him the five commandments related to your relationship with your brothers and sisters. He says, to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely and honor your father and mother. You know, one of the dangers of, of materialism, right, um, more money, more problems, one of the dangers of materialism is that our resources can often come first and our relationships can slip further and further down our list of priorities. And we step into a poverty of relationship with others, a real poverty. That's why one of the biblical tests for love of God is, do you love your brother and sister? If you do, then we know that you love God. But another reason that Jesus approaches the man's question this way is, is that he could test his allegiance to God with a simple challenge. What he says to him in, in Luke chapter 18 is this. He says, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This challenge, it tested his fundamental allegiance, his relationship with God. Was his security in God or was it in his possessions? Did his peace and trust resort, reside in God or did it, did it reside in his net worth? Jesus asked him to lay down all of his earthly treasures, all his earthly possessions, and he promises heavenly treasures. I think that's important to note that he said, hey, you're going to get heavenly treasures, but there were lowercase gods that seemingly offered this man more than Christ could give more than God could give, and he walks away in a brokenness and a spiritual poverty. But let me, let me make it abundantly clear. <laughs> the test for salvation isn't whether we have an empty bank account. <laughs> the test for salvation isn't whether we have nothing. The test is where does our trust, where does our hope, where does our peace reside? You look at Zacchaeus. He stepped into salvation. He passed Jesus' quote-unquote test, and he had resources at the end of his story. And we hear that. And we like that footnote, and we like that explanation. 
Because just how with the rich young ruler, Jesus said this, and it kind of touched a nerve. When I read this passage, kind of touches a nerve in me. Like, is he telling me to be broke for Jesus? Like, should I be getting rid of everything and be homeless to the glory of God? Like, is that what he wants from me? No, that's just the test Jesus gives this man in this instance. And we, we don't like tests. Maybe, Ben, do you like tests? You just graduated high school? No, I didn't really like tests in high school. You guys that have to test to, to qualify for a certain job. I don't know many people that like tests, but we like things that are tested. When I'm driving down 64 to Newport News for various reasons and I see a teenager driving next to me that looks 11 years old, I like to know that before they got behind a the wheel, they had a driving test. And before that car got out on the road, the brakes were tested, the system, the engine was tested. We don't necessarily like being tested ourselves, but we like to know that things around us are tested. It begins to help us rethink giving and generosity because one of the tests for our faith and, and our relationship with God is this, this priority giving of our first fruits to God. And I think so often people get it twisted and we think that we pass the basket and the offering as if it's some cover charge for the church. But that's baloney. It's a test of our trust. It's a test of our relationship with God. And it's not that God only wants 10% of our heart. He wants it all. Total surrender to an all-loving, almighty God who created all things, sustained all things, and is the giver of all good things. It's fitting, when you think about it, that Jesus asked for 100% of this man's life, right? Jesus paid it all, 10% to him I owe. Those aren't the words. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's not I surrender 10%. It's I surrender all. We talked, again, about the pathway of rest weeks ago. And God asked for the Sabbath, not because he wants one out of seven days. But in that, it lays the foundation that all we have. All the time we're given on this earth, every week we have, to, it's a gift from God. And we offer it back to him and we can rest in him. In the same way, our first fruits, it doesn't deny that all of our fruit and all of our assets is God, but it, it shows that we believe it. It's, hear me, it's not the percentage that pleases the Lord, it's the posture of the heart that gives. And it's the posture of the heart that's generous. Giving and generosity, it tests our faith. And it kicks us off our throne, and it gets rid of our God complex. Randy Alcorn said, giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me, and it exalts him. Again, you start talking about rest. Many would say, well, the Sabbath rest, as we see it in the Bible, it's archaic. It's old. We don't, we don't need it. Some would say the same about the tithe. But you look at what Jesus said about the Sabbath rest, that it's made for man not vice versa, that it was made to meet a need in man, this, this need to rest. So whatever rest looks like for us, we should be championing it. Because I would say our culture, the pace has only picked up. Again, the, 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 the race to accumulate assets and, and, and work and work and work. Man, we need to champion rest. We need it now more than ever. And you could say the same with our generosity and, as it being a test of our trust in the Lord. Because we're surely far, far more blessed than the early persecuted church, right? We're far more blessed than them. You put our material blessing next to theirs is like Everest next to an anthill. When you just compare the two, how much more do we need the same test? And how much easier is it for us to just step into that God complex where it's like, I'm doing pretty good. I put all this together and it's mine. But again, giving, it dethrones me, it exalts Jesus 
and it puts us back in this proper, rich relationship with God and a rich relationship with self because it helps us get rid of that God complex. But God isn't just concerned about our treasure and our posture towards that and us rethinking our giving and generosity, but he's, he also, he knows we have resources like time, we have resources like talent that helps us to rethink serving. Rethink our service, how we, how we serve others, our relationship with others and our relationship with creation. It helps us out of a poverty of, of, of community, helps us out of a poverty of, of stewardship. And let me just hit you with this idea that fulfillment is found at the intersection of God's will and your giftings. That we have gifts we have strengths, we have talents, we have experiences that we've gone through that God knew we were going to go through. We have abilities in our lives that may, we might not even know we have them yet because we haven't developed them. We haven't put the time into them. But God knows every ability in your life that you've tapped into or maybe you haven't tapped into. And he created us in this way. And because of that, he knows the path to fulfillment for us. But so often in life, the script we operate from is we use our time and our talents to, again, build up our assets. And then one day we die, we pass those on to our kids. But we never find that deep fulfillment. And it's because God's will for me never ends with me. <laughs> if it does, then I've lived my life in a poverty of relationship with community and a poverty of, of relationship and stewardship. Because I'm called to serve my family, but I'm called to serve my community. I'm called to serve my world, my church with my time and my talents. Peter found that out when he left everything to serve Jesus and to be his disciple. He wrote himself in his epistle. It's First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. He said, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. If you read that and keep going to verse 11, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Again, we're, all, we're called to serve in all different arenas to the glory of God. I'm called to serve my wife in my home. I'm called to the hills of the Dominican Republic that I couldn't find without a guide to serve people there. But it's telling that this passage in the Amplified Version is direct translation. It says, if anyone serves the congregation, talking about the body of believers, you know, there's something beautiful about selfless service. And there's something beautiful that happens when you get rooted in the family of faith, you get rooted in the church. But there's something profoundly beautiful. Peter even calls it God glorifying that God's praise through it when you begin serving the family of faith in the church. That's why serving is one of the 12 pathways and disciplines that we celebrate here at City Life because we know that when you do it, you'll find life in it and God gets praise from it. And when we rethink serving in this way, we realize that it realigns our relationship with others, realigns our relationship with creation. It helps us to step out of a poverty of community. It helps us to step out of a poverty of stewardship. Man, you you think, man, I don't have a lot of close relationships. Start serving somebody. This is just practical. This isn't even at church. Like, you serve somebody, that'll open the door to coffee, a relationship. That's just practical life advice. We're called to serve. But then we also rethink giving when we see that it realigns our relationship with God and it realigns our relationship with self, healing our God complex and opening our hands so that we can receive intimacy with God. But if I, if I could have Levi come up, he's going to play some, play on the guitar, make me sound extra good. 
You want to sound extra spiritual when there's an instrument behind you. Because I'm segueing into something that's not as spiritual. Derek Carr, he's a quarterback in the NFL, got paid this week. I'm pretty sure, you know, it breaks down differently for different quarterbacks. I'm pretty sure he just became the richest quarterback in NFL history this week. Signed a five-year, $125 million contract. It's a lot of money, right? A lot more than anybody will see. And, of course, one of the first questions is like, man, when you sign a deal that much, you know you're getting that much money. The first question, and a question he was asked is, what are you going to do with the money? And it's funny, before the guy could even finish his question, he said, Chick-fil-A. I'm going to get Chick-fil-A. And I said, amen. Not even in churches. I'm like, yes, buddy. <laughs> but he was joking because his training was there and he was trying to eat clean. And what he went on to say is the first thing I'll do is pay my tithe like I have since I was in college, giving $700 on a scholarship check. That won't change. I'll do that. And then he went on to say the most exciting thing for me is the fact that this money will help people around this country and around the world. That's what's exciting for me. And it was just telling for me that here's this athlete just signed a five-year, $125 million contract. And people are like, what are you going to do with the money? And the first thing he thinks about is giving and generosity. Just powerful to me. You don't see that very often. I'm not trying to glorify him, but you think about it. and We might say, well, it's easy for him to say. Dude just signed a five-year, $125 million contract. (laughs) Put all of us together, we might never make that in our lives, right? But we, too, are materially blessed. You look at statistics, if you drove here tonight in a car, you're in the top 10% of the world. How many of us are going home tonight and there's a second car in the driveway? Third car, right? And I don't do that to to do a a drive-by guilt trip, but just to ask the question, I mean, what's the function? What's the function? You know, we just adopted Raj, reading a lot of books on parenting. He doesn't understand a darn thing I say yet. He's got an arsenal of maybe 10 words, but I'm already practicing. And, and a question I, I, I'm going to ask, and I ask now, and Steph's like, he doesn't know what you're saying, is, is what's the function? You know, it's scary how quickly he and other babies and children, I'm sure you're aware, are drawn to technology. Like, we brought him back to our hotel room that first day. I'm on cloud nine, and he sees the iPad, and it's like a beeline to technology. I don't know what kind of voodoo magic, like, Steve Jobs puts on that stuff, but iPad, iPhone, he was all over it. And they weren't even on. Like, he uses the iPad as a mirror. Like, would look at himself, laugh, and then, like, his face would be on it. He'd just be giggling at himself because it wasn't even on. He'd just look at his reflection in the iPad. But my iPhone's a little different. Not only is it a mirror, but it's like a football. Throws it across the room, spikes it like Gronk after scoring a touchdown. And even now, I'm like, Raj, that's not the function of a phone. That's the function of a ball, right? What's the function? He has no idea what I'm talking about. But one day we'll get there. And the question to ask tonight is, what's the function of our blessing? And the real churchy answer is, well, I'm blessed to be a blessing, brother, right? But it's not just about giving material possessions. You look at our function as a church, our function as believers, it's to do that, but it's to point people toward reconciliation. Another question I'm going to use is, what's your task? You know, orphans that have been deprived early on, maybe have been abused early on, it can lead to an attention deficit that leads to just a complication to concentrate. And I'm sure you probably have your own kids where it's nothing different. You tell them to put on their shoes, five minutes later they're playing with a ball, right? And the simple question is, what was your task? Followed by, let's focus on completing our task. You know, for us, in a materially blessed culture, again, there's nothing wrong with material things. Nothing wrong with having material things. But there's something wrong when they have us. 
when we become distracted by them and we're pulled away from our task. Again, we read Colossians 1, but it's echoed in Paul's writing to the church and new believers of the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, he says, All of this, everything we have, our breath, our life, our family, our possessions, it's all a gift from God who bought us back, brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. All these gifts, all these blessings, and he's given us also a purpose. And that's a gift. He's given us a task in this life, and it's the ministry of reconciliation. Both vertically with God, healing that relationship, but horizontally. I don't know if you watch the news, but there's a lot of work to be done horizontally. Relationship with others, stewarding creation, restoring relationship and stepping out of brokenness and a poverty in those areas. And we talk about Jesus again and again and again and again because the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel is, is the supreme generous act. Nothing more generous. You read Philippians 2 where it talks about he was in the throne room of God and yet came to be our servant. The more we read it, the more we study it, the more we live it, we should walk in generosity because love always gives, period. Whether it's of first fruits, treasures, time, energy, talents, love gives. And come on, we're going to worship tonight to close, and we're going to pray. And actually, the, we're going to start tonight. Just the Nawatnis are going to be in the back corner. If you want prayer from me, that's cool. You can come up. But we, we're also going to have them available in the back to pray as we worship, as we close, and then after service. But I don't know what you maybe need prayer for tonight. Maybe it's a, a poverty in spiritual intimacy with God. Maybe you would just say, I'm far from God tonight. I can't even put my finger on why, but I know I need prayer. <laughs> I know I need to step into a moment of praise and worship. And, and, and again, James 4, 8 says, when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Maybe that's what you need to do tonight. Maybe it's a poverty of, 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 of self. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe you feel like you're not worth squat and God will want nothing to do with you. Or maybe you realize you've been thinking too highly of yourself and because of that you've forgotten God. You've forgotten the fact that you need his grace like the air you breathe. Whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other, man, this is a time to step into his presence and then step into prayer. And lastly, maybe it's a, a poverty of community. Maybe you feel just straight up lonely. Build some bridges. Find somebody after service. Go to dinner, get coffee. Maybe not tonight, maybe next week. But first, before we do that, let's, again, let's step into God's presence. Let's ask him to meet us here as only he can through his Holy Spirit, through the gift of the blood of Jesus. But come on, if we could stand, we're going to step it back into worship. Levi's going to close us in worship, but I just want to pray. Jesus, we thank you that everything we read and opened in Colossians 1, God, it's the case and it's still the case that you want to reconcile all things to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so often, God, you, you ask for our all. <laughs> and we read passages like the rich young ruler and we, it kind of hits us the wrong way. Like, really, give you everything? But how could I begrudgingly give you my best, my first fruits, when I when I give you my worst so you could die for me on the cross. Lord God, we thank you that you came to take our shame, take our guilt, and because of that, God, I pray that it would just spark something in us. God, that would 
Help us to step into generosity like never before. Step into serving like never before. And and step into relationship with you like never before. God, however you want to meet us tonight, whether we're in a poverty of intimacy with you, a poverty of self, a poverty of community, God, I pray that you would come here and minister to us. As we prayed after worship, you would take away whatever veil is holding us back from you. God, and we would step into your presence right now through praise and worship. But we praise you and thank you, Jesus Christ. And when before the throne I stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save My lips shall still you Cause Jesus paid it all And all to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Cause Jesus paid it all to him 